0: Extract from Komponor Procurement Office Report 0511 Delta. Investigating the Loss of Manpower and Materiel from Imperial Stores. Redacted. Note to Moff Pelez on Missing Resources. Your Excellency. As per my designated role as Sub-Sector Quartermaster, I have tallied a list of sectoral resources currently at our disposal and those budgeted to us for Fiscal Year 18 of the Standard Imperial Calendar. I regret to inform you that upon scrutinizing these records, I have found approximately redacted deletions and redacted misallocations of material. While it is possible that these entries are corrections made by the Central Procurement Office, and I would not suggest any impropriety on behalf of any CompNOR members therein, I cannot rationalize the following missing items. Redacted liters of Imperial Ale Redacted pairs of boots and sundry footwear pieces Redacted sets of Stormtrooper armor and accompanying maintenance pieces. 1,500 tons of redacted and modular redacted material. 150 redacted-redacted. All told, I estimate that approximately redacted credits of the above material is missing, with a further redacted amount previously budgeted not in our stores at the most recent time of audit. Having carried out discrete investigations, it seems that significant amounts of resources are missing. Preliminary data from shipping manifests suggest that several of our designated cargo shuttles had false itineraries filed. Current estimate stands at redacted shuttles carrying redacted tons of cargo. The Imperial Security Bureau staff on base have managed to ascertain that at least two of these shuttles actually ended up transiting to the redacted system, a system that I'm sure your eminence is aware does not lie under your immediate command. I have forwarded my investigation files to you such that you may make any inquiries as you deem appropriate. Glory to the Empire, Quartermaster 1st Grade, and Smorf. End of Extract. File sealed and sent to ISB Internal Investigation Sector Command. Quartermaster Smorf subsequently executed for treason on 014519 at Outpost 420 Grimdark Battle Station. Hello and welcome to another episode of GDBS, the show that applies reality to sci-fi as if it makes sense and happily boils our tea with a lasgun. Today's topic is the second part of an analysis of whether or not the Death Star was as dumb an idea as Qui-Gon not just going to a currency exchange on Tatooine. As always we have a small bit of lore housekeeping to avoid the thesis level angry emails that may come our way. The tone of this podcast is a semi critically look at what happened in these stories try and flesh them out to comparable human standards, and open up the what, how, and why of politics, warfare, and science fiction. At best, it is a semi-academic dive through made-up universes that are as narratively consistent as an elementary school essay. At worst, it will be an elementary school dive through made-up universes that are as narratively consistent as a master's thesis. When we look at Star Wars writing, we can find a lot of variation and oddities, discrepancies, and retcons. It is a vast library of information that is an end result of creating something entertaining and marketable. There are two ways to get around this, either you steer into the cheese, or you go around it. We've chosen to go around it and give the benefit of the doubt to any discrepancies and make it make sense. And if the official data makes less sense the unofficial or legends data, then we're taking the legends data as well. Housekeeping out of the way. The narrative leaps we took last time surrounded figuring out sensible monetary value, assuming rationality on behalf of the Galactic Empire, and accepting the space economy for what it might logically be. What we settled on was a day one operational cost to the Death Star construction project of 100 trillion galactic credits, or basically a multiplier of 100 in terms of warship costs. Applied universally, this means nothing in terms of cost comparisons for ships. But it does help a lot in terms of manpower and material, the other key ingredients of waging war. Based on these calculations, this would mean an approximate fleet of 7,000 Star Destroyers, or Star Destroyer equivalent. Some sources put the number of Star Destroyers at 25,000 during the height of the Galactic Empire just before the Battle of Endor. So in destroyer terms, this is around about an extra 5,000 if we account for economies of scale, increased staffing costs, etc, etc. And that's all well and good, but what use is this manpower, and is it comparable or superior to what the Death Star was theoretically going to be put to? In our first episode on the Death Star, we already established that it was to be used as a terror weapon to suppress dissent, and we've also gone a bit into the practical uses for this super weapon in carrying out that task. To form an opinion, though, on whether or not Death Star alternatives would have been a better option, we have to look deeply at the strategic reality of the Empire, as well as different theories of governance they could have employed, assuming from the start that a free and representative democratic government was an absolute non-starter. In terms of the strategic setting, when understanding why political entities choose to implement certain defense and security strategies, It is very important to consider the entire strategic context, including, but not limited to, the way politics, demography, economics and geography operate to shape their understandings and goals. What security looks like and what warfare looks like is both very similar and very different in Star Wars than it is in our reality. The geographic context of Star Wars is vast. The Empire is effectively in charge of an area so large that nothing could truly ever control 100% of it. According to the Star Wars Essential Atlas, the Empire had 1.5 million worlds that were members or conquered, and 69 million colonies, protectorates, and puppet states. These planets were spread across an area about 50,000 light years wide. And although it's stated in source data that most capital ships of the era could traverse this distance in about 16 to 32 hours, that sounds like another case of magical Star Wars numbers. Magical, because at those speeds the Empire could genuinely be everywhere at once, with overwhelming firepower less than 2 to 4 hours away from any point in the galaxy. In movies we see characters go even faster than this to reach planets on the other side of the galaxy. Sidious travels to Mustafar in what seems like a couple of hours. The Rebellion would have to succeed in each strike within minutes to have any chance of surviving. Again, we're faced with a bit of an issue, because how do you put a value on this? Money is one thing, but hypothetical travel times for faster than light starships? I think the closest you can get to a reasonable travel time in a Class 1 hyperdrive, that's used by the Star Destroyers, is again going to be a multiple of that. That's without including the issue of hyperspace lanes and other practical aspects of space travel. Sure, you can get from planet A to planet B in 12 hours, but you actually have to go via planet C to get a clear hyperspace lane, so it adds another 12 hours to your journey. It's more realistic to say that a Star Destroyer would take about 4-5 to five days minimum to traverse the galaxy, and so a 1-2 to two day lag to reinforce any systems from their muster points but it really could easily be longer or shorter. For the sake of fun and narrative, it probably has to be flexible. The one thing it can't be, though, is mere hours. That is a step too far. With a few days' travel time from one end to the other, and four different categories of territory to control, the Empire will have a unique set of challenges. They have docile settled worlds, What we assume are highly developed conquered worlds, they have colonies, and they have puppet states. All of these are different vibes, and each one requires a different dispersal and composition of forces. So the geography requires a military system that can easily scale resources, but also have different tiers of ships and soldiers to carry out counterinsurgency, point defense, siege, blockade, trade interdiction, shows of force, anti-piracy, etc., etc., Flexibility, scalability, and standardization would be key in a geographic context like this. When we move on and look at the demography of the galaxy, this is a big nightmare for any human supremacist regime like the Empire. While it offers them opportunities at economic subjugation and easy quote-unquote identity politics, it also means not having trillions of people on your side, people actively sympathetic to your enemies because you keep repressing them. It of course doesn't help that we have no idea about the demography of the galaxy except for the general idea that there are upwards of 400 quadrillion people in the empire and humans are the dominant and most numerous species. Those numbers are far too big to work with so we'll take that at least 50% of the imperial population is human with all other species representing no more than 1-2% to each. This massive challenge is compounded by the fact that there will not be an evenly distributed population of humans and aliens, especially not in outlying systems. So we have a relatively unique situation where the Empire can face worlds full of humans that hate them or love them, worlds with a relatively equal mix, and worlds heavily skewed towards alien population. This creates distinct challenges for each type of world, and potentially multiple challenges within single systems. You could easily have a system with a human-dominated main world and human-alien colonies on the outlying planets. The demographic problem can only be solved a few ways as well, primarily because the Empire cannot, by its very design, create an inclusive, equitable, and representative society. It needs to have one group on top, humans, with enough of their support to represent a strong minority of the entire galactic population. In addition, there will be many systems that are majority alien and cannot be fully repressed, so they'll have to have some support among collaborators. The same goes for any of their puppets or vassal systems. When dealing with the demography of the Empire, there will be times where you divide and conquer, and times where you just conquer, not to mention times where you bribe or genuinely convince people to be on your side. Fear might be the primary motivator, but it can't be the sole motivator for the entire decentralized population. That's why even a military as repressive as the Imperial Navy would need to have enough helpful functions, e.g. repair fleets or subsidised travel, sale of equipment to local businesses or political factions, to maintain good order. And speaking of the maintenance of order, it's perhaps obvious enough that the political requirements of the Empire are very much related to the fact that it's a multi-species entity ruled by a single supremacist faction. By default, this political system cannot be representative and cannot be open or fair. It has to be a repressive, closed and decidedly unfair society for the large minority. We see during the end of the prequel trilogy, and on into A New Hope, that the Imperial Senate is initially paid lip service to, then used as a rubber stamp for the dictator's commands, and finally completely dissolved in favour of direct military rule. The interesting thing about this occurring in a galaxy-spanning empire is that we are given multiple levels of granularity in politics that don't really exist here on Earth. This is partly because of the geography we've talked about earlier, but also to do with the fact that we have an evil space wizard controlling everything. and like all dictatorships, the political system is set up to allow first and foremost for the dictator to maintain their grip on power. Second to this is creating the ability for the system of dictatorship to endure even after the original ruler is gone. The problem is these two things are competing ideas. If the system can have anybody placed at the top then the dictator is no longer safe. This is especially true when we have a system that creates the level of superpower people immediately below the empire, the moths and the heads of the very very security services. There are clear parallels here between the empire and the Nazi party, where evil henchmen below Hitler were constantly scheming against each other to improve their relative standing. This is of great use for the emperor, because he keeps any challengers very busy fighting each other, while at the same time keeping them afraid of him. In a lot of source material, it says that Palpatine encouraged the building of little kingdoms by his subordinates, while also ensuring that many of these kingdoms' power bases overlapped. This is a key point. He intentionally made the Empire less efficient, so that if any single person moved against him, there was always somebody or a group there with enough experience to take over every aspect of the Rebels' role. Below this level, we obviously had direct regional control by military leaders, the Moffs, and that trickled down to sector control and planetary control, which could be either civilian or military in nature. It was basically just plopping a layer or two of military control on top of the bureaucracy of the older Republic. This meant that for each planet, colony or puppet state, the level above their individual maximum power was a military person, with complete power over their fate, and an ability to act outside any local or cultural political norms. The Empire would always be likely to take the easiest approach to achieve the goals of power brokers, corporate factions, or the military, it was inevitable that deployments of fleets, composition of fleets, and resourcing of fleets would rarely be optimal unless it was ordered from the highest imperial level. Which is one more reason why a Death Star or even three was a bad idea, because it concentrated too much firepower in one single point of failure. The odds of a Moff going rogue with a battle station that size were significantly higher than if he or she had a 100 ships. They are literally encouraged to be power-hungry schemers and their subordinates to be unthinking robots that follow orders. And, even if you want to argue that their loyalty would somehow be increased by being handed the keys to this technological monstrosity, the fact that they can cause more immediate damage with a Death Star than with any other piece of equipment is something that we can't explain away. The green-eyed monster of jealousy would definitely appear. As we've mentioned a few times in this and other episodes, the Empire was a generally decentralised economy with a huge military-industrial complex. Functionally, this would have meant that the core worlds and other developed productive worlds would have sucked in resources from poorer worlds at a huge discount to produce goods and services that would then be sold back to everyone including the poorer worlds at a higher cost. It is very similar to the way developed countries have treated African countries for half a century, but with one added aspect. While the corporate elite are legally empowered to siphon resources, their energies have to be pointed primarily toward the maintenance of the status quo and the practical support of the military-industrial complex. All things, even economic, are subservient to the will of the emperor, because he has no need or care for money and has powers that allow him to transcend pressure from any political action committee. Humans that went along with the regime likely got comparative advantages over other humans and the repressed alien species that the Empire controlled. I say comparative advantages, because even if you were rolling in cash because you were an intergalactic bootlicker extraordinaire, you were only secure if your influence levels were higher than the people you had problems with. There would likely be no recourse if you were screwed over by the system itself or somebody more powerful although if you were in conflict with somebody of similar levels of influence, you likely had a relatively fair justice system. Because of this, the support of minority and most of the puppet systems that played along and were loyal would have had access to a well-stocked economy with affordable prices and probably a better quality of living. In addition, the illusion of a more orderly society would have provided a sense of economic security even if the penalties for dissent were now astronomically higher than they had been. So the Imperial Navy and Army would have devoted significant resources to ensure the consistency of resource transfer from the oppressed to the oppressors. They would have achieved this by devoting garrison resources to important worlds and trade protection resources to hyperspace lanes and particular sectors to prevent piracy and local governors skimming too much off the top for themselves. Additionally, they would have had good reason to deploy training and development resources to loyal worlds to ensure a flow of recruits and be a positive presence to the local population. Above these considerations, the Imperial Armed Forces would have to protect the galactic economy as a whole, either through defensive wars, offensive conquests, or the extinguishing of large-scale insurrections. We already know that a developed planet could likely afford to field significant forces off their own economic production. We see in canon and legends that the Mon Calamari were able to churn out hundreds of capable spaceships. However, unlikely this would be to happen regularly is irrelevant, as the sheer number of systems involved means it would be inevitable and require multiple fleets at a state of constant readiness. Again, we see that the Empire needed a scalable military to carry out multiple functions simultaneously. Overall, we can see that fear and repression, while a core requirement of a functioning galactic Empire, still had to exist within the social, political, economic, and geographic reality of ruling millions of planets and quadrillions of people. The Death Star only fulfills the role of scaring certain systems. It's not useful for co-option of local humans or puppet alien elites, nor is it useful for protecting trade and economic exploitation. So what strategy and tools would tick all the boxes and would provide a scalable, multi-purpose military? But with all of that nerdy context provided, let's look at the nerdy practicalities of creating a military and security system that can better achieve the goal of the Empire than a planet-killing superweapon can. Obviously, there will be different ship and fleet requirements for different roles, and without a large number of different sized ships and source material, we have to assume that what we do and see scales proportionally in function, size and cost. The lowest level ship we know of that is functional in canon is the Gozanti-class armor transport, and the largest that we know of is a superstar Destroyer or any one of those large dreadnoughts used in the later movies. Of course, the issue we raised earlier with travel time sort of raises the question about whether these fleets are similar to ships or similar to a squadron of airplanes that fly around the world. You know, an airplane needs fuel and supplies, but it can theoretically hop from place to place without needing dedicated support. If it takes a Star Destroyer less than two days to traverse the galaxy, then the strategy you use for it is not a naval strategy, because it can literally just go out and fight and immediately come back. If you make it take weeks, other areas of the franchise become less interesting, fun or sensible. So we settle and say that a Star Destroyer goes out with 4-5 to support vessels, some smaller picket type ships like the Imperial Raider, some logistic repair vessels, and maybe a specialist ship or two based on where you're going or what you're doing. In a lot of canon material, we see lone star destroyers or lone cruisers occupying vast swathes of space, but it's more likely that there are support ships nearby, we just don't see them immediately near what we're looking at. some of the Legends material, we get a good bit of info about just how big a fleet can be. Sector-sized fleets are said to be around 2,400 vessels, with a ratio of about 1 star destroyer per 100 other vessels, but they are split in details in some other sources too. Because space warfare is sort of like a mix between sea war and air war, there is some overlap of strategic concepts, but generally the golden rule is to deploy resources as effectively and efficiently as possible to achieve your stated goals. And that's where the concept of the color navy comes in. In naval strategy on earth, we have blue, green, and brown water navies. This designation refers to the perceived colors of the waters in which they can operate. A brown water navy operates in waterways like rivers and lakes and can hug the coastline of a country. In Star Wars, these forces patrol around individual planets and between close celestial bodies, possibly along local trade lanes too. A green water navy operates both close to land and within the open ocean, in the general region of the country that owns it. For example, the Italian navy in the Mediterranean would be carrying out green water operations. In Star Wars, this means a force that is at home, within its own sector, but could travel anywhere under certain circumstances. Finally, a blue water navy operates in the deep, deep ocean. The US Navy is the world's premier blue water navy. This force can be anywhere it needs to be, any time it needs to be, in enough force to achieve its goals. In Star Wars terms, these are sector fleets, or permanently deep space based fleets, that react to changing circumstances. The Galactic Empire pretty much just uses one force to fulfill all these roles across an entire galaxy. The roles that this unified navy would fulfill probably fall within five important distinctions. Internal security, trade protection, war fighting, counterinsurgency, and political slash hearts and minds. Some of you can probably guess how many of those a Death Star would actually be the best choice for. When looking at internal security, this is the most vital aspect of all authoritarian regimes. It's focused on preventing dissent, maintaining the invulnerable image of the state, and protecting the empowered class through an informal legal system. The last of these is not something that spaceships are going to have to worry much about, although military powers probably used if the players in the dispute are powerful enough. The Imperial Navy's role, then, is preventing dissent by being coercive and bringing its power to bear in the form of weapons and access. In terms of weapons, the Imperial Navy is at its best when it can react quickly to any security issue it encounters with sufficient force to meet whatever threat has materialized. The Death Star battle stations existed to preempt the need for speed, as it was theorised that the guarantee of eventual annihilation was greater than the possibility of immediate, less-than-fatal violence. When we look at other entities in Star Wars, like the ISB or Intelligence Ubiquit, it's clear that the Navy is the junior partner in internal security in a philosophical sense. However, in the practical sense, the Navy holds all the keys to free unmolested movement among the stars, You may not be afraid of the substandard Imperial troops stationed on your homeworld, but you are certainly going to treat the people controlling your ability to travel interstellar, or even across your own planet, with a lot more deference and respect. While law enforcement and security apparatuses have a bigger role to play in this, they are backed up by appropriate might of a navy. Another reason why a single lethal weapon would be too blunt an instrument to use. Another area where you can't always go around vaporizing people is in intergalactic trade. The Empire, much like Nazi Germany, has significant features of a corporate oligarchy. This means that a lot of economic activity would have been quote-unquote collectivized to strip economic agency away from the average citizen and a tier of hyper-wealthy people created that were buffered by a servile class of bootlicking officials. To ensure that the people at the very top made money, the people in the middle would have to engage in on-the-ground commerce on a daily basis, on their behalf, the Empire would always go to great lengths to protect a system allowing this to happen. Outside of the Emperor wanting to rock the boat a bit, the elite would stay the elite through a bureaucracy that was designed more to be pliable than generally reliable. This meant that customs regimes, transfer of materials, people, resources, and even intellectual property would have to be ruthlessly protected by the use of security forces. Trade lanes would have to stay pirate-free and decongested for the elite. The idea of an Imperial IOU would have to carry weight galaxy-wide. and In order to achieve this, the Empire would need fleet resources along key routes, static and key intersections, and planets, as well as in reserve to react to any emerging situations. Ironically enough, significant resources did have to be devoted to ensuring the destruction of Alderaan did not negatively affect any trade or trade routes and that the resulting asteroid field was successfully cordoned off. While we're on the topic of traitors, a lot of times in media we see the perspective that internal security and counterinsurgency are the same thing. Nothing could be further from the truth. Counterinsurgency is the fallback activity that you have to engage in once your internal security fails. The core difference is that the insurgent is more organised, less personal, and more of a threat. The insurgency requires an inordinate amount of resources and strategic thinking to counteract. It's also worth noting that it is notoriously difficult for authoritarian regimes to combat insurgencies without resorting to scorched earth tactics and massive overreactions. Because you're not trying to keep the citizen from stepping out of line, you're trying to figure out which one of them is carrying a blaster pistol. In this, your approach has to include much more targeted measures than just ATSTs on every street corner. The rule of thumb in strategy on Earth is that for every insurgent you need to deploy 10 people to counter them. This number is likely far higher given the scale of the galaxy, even if their better technology would help. The navy would have to have forces that could deploy quickly and with just enough force to get the job done. They would have to have a stable presence that is highly visible, alongside more loosely controlled groups that could fight the rebels at their own game. You can see that the Death Star is only a stable and highly visible presence. It's never an appropriate reaction and never flexible enough to fight guerrillas at their own game. Of course, you do have to concede that it would be the most stable and the most highly visible threat presence. Another side benefit worth mentioning of not doing that, though, is that when you fight a counterinsurgency, you devolve a lot of tactical decision-making to junior officers. This creates a robust military that builds organizational knowledge. The Empire would constantly improve its counterinsurgence capabilities as time went on. Now, Besides the general task of blowing up pirates, rebels, and traitors, the Empire will also, on occasion, have to have stand up fights with people. And this was never really going to be a problem for such a vast, well funded military machine. Indeed, the Death Star would have had a great influence on any potential rival to the Empire. If you have 500 worlds and enough money to defend against an entire regional fleet, you would still have to deal with the fact that the Empire could reduce your home world to asteroids. In this, the Death Star is actually a solid choice, because you don't have to worry about fleet composition or other strategic concerns. You just have to do your Death Star thing, or maybe threaten to do it, and you are halfway to victory. The only way this comes back to bite you is if you have a near-peer enemy that can construct something similar. In Legends, the Hutts were able to build a smaller super laser, but still potently powerful, called a Darksaber, and that's not Mando's sword. Making it not outside the realm of possibility that one of several political entities could create something big enough to set off a proper galactic Cold War. Overall, the Death Star is a strategic weapon with strategic consequences. The real calculus is if the Death Star can do more in a war than the same amount of ships can when strategic consequences are accounted for. Even despotic regimes like the Galactic Empire have to ham it up for political purposes from time to time and be set up intentionally to try to avoid near-peer conflict. Whether through propaganda, displays of force, infrastructure or sheer presence, the regime needs to use every tool in its arsenal to ensure that the idea of the Empire is hard-coded into as many minds as possible. The Death Star was one huge hearts and minds platform. Its continued existence would have pushed the Empire to the front of the mind of every being in the galaxy, imperial controlled or not. Diplomacy at the planet, vassal or neighbour level becomes instantly more plight. A visit by the Death Star, even without a good old fashioned Alderaanning, would have been awe-inspiring. Many neo-imperial countries today send their navies around the world for broadly similar purposes, PR and power projection. How many people would the Death Star have radicalised against the regime? That's hard to tell. Certainly the galaxy wouldn't have denigrated into crying babies like the rebel leadership did in Rogue One, but I'm sure it's safe to say at the political level on the galaxy the Death Star would have had an outsized impact on everybody. Of course a fleet of six star destroyers permanently in your system would likely have had the same impact over the long term, but you do have to give credit where credit is due. Now enough fair credit to the Death Star, what's the sensible alternative that's not going to waste a huge amount of money? We have 100 trillion credits to work with from our prior logic and 1.2 million people based on the staffing level of the Death Star. The responsible thing to do for our galactic constituents is to ensure that they get some of that sweet, sweet military contractor money in their area. So at this end we're going to skim 1% of the cost of a Death Star and put it into extra manpower. Assuming it's the same price to train an Imperial soldier as a US Marine, and an officer is an officer. So about a quarter of a million credits to train a general officer and maybe 50,000 credits to train a Marine. Using a ratio of 1 to 5 and assuming a Thai pilot isn't top gun expensive, overall we're going to graduate 10 million extra military personnel for a price of 1 trillion credits. Now we have 11 million-ish crew and 99 trillion credits. So, I think we can say generally that staffing costs are not something we need to consider, even if we add in army security and intelligence troops as well, and make it a whole family affair. With the sheer scale of resources available to us, we can construct multiple fleets in, all, in our alternative navy the Scalpel, a web of small intersector fleets, the Hammer, floating regional fleets, and the Wrecking Ball, system killer fleets. Fleet Type 1, the scalpel The vast majority of counterinsurgency operations are much smaller than people realise. They don't call them small wars for no reason. In our reality this generally means trying to root out a small number of hidden enemies from within a densely populated area or tracking them down in some form of wilderness. If we look at the Iraqi insurgency we saw a huge amount of fighting take place in big towns and cities. And, of course, is the example of the Taliban using the northwest frontier province of Pakistan as a free movement zone to fight both Russian and ISAF forces. In Star Wars terms, this would be turned up to 11. What passes for a city can contain hundreds of millions of people, and in some cases cover most of a planet. What passes for wilderness could be an area of space so vast that it would take six weeks to even do a cursory scan of. Although they are more technically advanced than we are, the scale of the problem facing the Empire is much more like pre-computer age counterinsurgency, where time, resources, bodies and brutality are your core tools. From a purely military standpoint, defeating any counterinsurgency is done using small unit tactics. It's normally not done in big set-piece battles like Endor. The insurgency is not one homogenous blob. It is a series of malignant growths all over your body politic, sorry for that really gross analogy. Sure, you could use a hammer to remove these growths, but it's probably easier to use a scalpel. The Empire does this in quite a few bits of media, especially in the Rebels series, where their deployment of resources gradually increase alongside the threat. Now, Due to the heroic nature of Star Wars stories, the Empire ineffectively deploys overwhelming force for most of the series, but their overall plan was solid. If we accept that the entire Rebel fleet will be unlikely to appear at any sector or sub-regional level conflict, what happened in Scarif and Rogue One is not happening every week or the Rebellion will be done within 6 months, then you can readily build a good enough Imperial force that can be spread wide enough in enough numbers to either keep a lid on the Rebellion, or outright smother it. The source data mentions various battle formations of the Imperial Navy. The smallest functional one is called a line, and that's anywhere from 2 to 20 ships. Above that is a squadron of 14 to 60, and so on through systems forces and fleets until you get to a sector group of 2,400 ships including 24 Star Destroyers. The Navy has special lines for attack, pursuit, recon, skirmish, siege and troop transport. So what does a scalpel force look like? Bear with me because this is going to be a hell of a lot of numbers. We will deploy three victory class Star Destroyers. That's 15,000 crew, 6,000 troops, 72 TIE fighters and enough firepower combined to take out any lower tier planet or colony. We'll also deploy one escort carrier, which is 3,400 crew, 72 TIE fighters and 800 troops. It's just a carrier, but the ties are very dangerous. We're going to deploy 12 strike cruisers, 2,400 crew. They're highly modular and can be a troop, equipment, or mid-sized carrier. So we're going to take 4,000 troops and 200 fighters. While vulnerable and not specialized, in the right configuration, they could blanket an entire system with threats. We're also going to deploy three interdictor cruisers. Those are those sweet-ass star destroyers with gravity well generators. That's 8400 crew and 72 TIE fighters. They could probably pick at a planet, but they would also be able to stop ships from jumping into hyperspace, or carry out interdiction in the middle of hyperspace lanes. I guess hence the name Interdictor. We'll deploy 24 light cruisers, which is 30,000 crew, and 48 scout TIEs combined. It's a firepower that could pick at a planet, but not do much more. And we're going to deploy 24 Imperial Raider Corvettes, that's 2,400 crew and they're specifically designed to blow apart starfighters. 24 of them could probably destroy any normal rebel starfighter force. Now that's a lot of words, and we'll spare this detail looking at the other fleets, but it's good to see just how much crap the Empire can shovel into the furnace of their anti rebel activities. The total amount of crew of this is 85,000. The total amount of soldiers is 11,000 troops, and give or take 500 TIE fighters. The number of systems it could dominate, it could probably take on 6 mid-tier systems at a time, and it could probably have some form of reasonable parity in about 24 mid-tier systems at a time. The total cost for this is roughly 60 billion adjusted credit. So if we deploy 500 of these battle groups. Effectively covering 12,000 systems for 30 trillion adjusted credits, it also gives us an extra bonus of 250,000 TIE Fighters, making their weird screechy noises across the galaxy. It would allow self-sufficient garrisoning of 50 to 100 worlds, depending on their population as well. That is for less than one-third the cost of a Death Star. Moving on to The Hammer. Now, Not every threat to the Empire is going to be a space Jedi insurgency. Indeed, Mon Calamari, a key player in the Rebel Alliance, had the capacity to produce dozens of capital ships, as well as mine the hyperspace lanes leading to their planet. That's not a job for a scalpel, it's a job for a sledgehammer. And it's probably not just our favourite fish people either. At any point in time there is going to be sufficient risk of a mid-tier planet turning its industrial capacity against the Empire, That would necessitate having a tool shed full of sledgehammers. That's one of the interesting things about Star Wars media. Besides people like Grand Admiral Thrawn, there seems to be no end of military in the Empire that are hammer by default. Every problem is a nail. Of course, the Galactic Empire is one of the galaxy's premier manufacturers of hammers, and the Imperial Star Destroyer is said in many sources to be able to bring an entire world to heel. I think it's safe to say that when we consider the economics and scope of the galaxy, that this refers to the average planet, not something like Corellia or Kuit, but more something like a Bespin or a Tatooine. In an empire of 1.5 million worlds and 69 million colonies and dependencies, there are probably about 500,000 to 750,000 worlds that can outfight one single Imperial Star Destroyer. Huge number of planets can stand up to one Star Destroyer. Certainly more than any of our fleets or three Death Stars could ever control comfortably, but we know that not every planet is going to be in open rebellion at any one point in time, and that at the time of Endor, the Imperial fleet already had 25,000 Star Destroyers. This would mean that they already had the relevant support ships for those Star Destroyers, likely already having a fleet power of around 250,000 ships. So the hammer needs to be able to have parity with the high medium or 50-75% to 75% on the bell curve of planetary power. For the big planets and systems it's likely that more than one fleet will be deployed and the hammer would need to be applied in a general sense. To make this fleet we're going to look at the Battle Squadron from the Star Wars RPG sourcebooks. This means 1 Imperial Star Destroyer, 2 frigates, 4 light cruisers, 10 corvettes and 2 carriers. That gives us 312 ties, 15,000 troops, and the ability to dominate 50 to 75% of the Empire systems for a cost of 30 billion adjusted credits, or 250 such fleets for 7.5 trillion credits. So far in adjusted credits, we're not even at 50% of the cost of the Death Star. So for the sake of this exercise, 50 trillion seems like a good place to stop. If we can say that we can Build a more effective fighting force to extinguish the rebellion and control the galaxy for half the price. We can confidently say that Death Star is a massive waste of money. What are we gonna do with the remaining 12.5 trillion, though? We're gonna spend that on a bunch of mini Death Stars, naturally, on the wrecking ball, and also on hand-waving away all the logistics of manning, constructing, and supplying all these fleets over and above what a Death Star. Would require. Now some of you may have already had an idea about what craft would be the wrecking ball if something as powerful as the star destroyer was relegated to sledgehammer status. I am talking of course about the torpedo spheres. The torpedo sphere is an alleged super weapon in canon that predates the empire in its conception and in legends is a bona fide superweapon. It is a 2km round siege platform that has 500 proton torpedo tubes, turbo lasers and some of the most advanced sensors and targeting computers in the galaxy. There's no planet cracking superlaser here, unfortunately. Instead, what a torpedo sphere does is it uses a coordinated torpedo strike at the weakest part of a planetary deflector shield to overload it and force the average ones to collapse and the advanced ones to at least temporarily go online which gives enough time for the fleet in orbit to destroy the planetary shield generators or at least half-level any significant infrastructure. The Empire, of course, had the code Base Delta Zero for its planetary destruction operations. Although this is a bit fluid between legends and canon, the idea is somewhere between the complete wiping out of a planet's population and a reduction of its entire capacity to host civilized life. A torpedo tube would be perfect for this, and is stated to be able to carry out a base Delta Zero operation alone within four standard days. The trade-off is that it is much less defensible than a Death Star, and needs to be much closer to enemy guns and fighters to carry out its mission. Without wanting to go into the philosophical discussion about whether the Empire even cared about their lives of its own soldiers, no shields and TIE fighters, right? This definitely represents an unacceptable cause compared to just using a DS-1. In addition, the base delta zero carried out by torpedo spheres would also likely permanently remove a piece of galactic real estate, even if it didn't create a shiny new asteroid field. So why bother risking fleet resources to bring a wayward planet to heel? Well, if your threat is the use of force and total annihilation, guess what? You're going to need a colossal picket line to prevent that planet from scurrying away as many relevant resources as possible. Indeed, you're going to have every planet seek to enact Death Star contingency plans outside of just rolling over and dying. The key difference with a torpedo sphere, as a wrecking ball fleet, is that you can leave the real estate intact or you can leave it recoverable. If the planet isn't backed into a fatal corner and has an uncertainty of its fate when your torpedo sphere arrives, those stressors will be a powerful tool. This is especially true for planets too financially, industrially or logistically important to destroy. When you consider that these Torpedo Spheres were also deployed in groups known as Constellations, it's clear that the Empire had a repression tool was everything up to and including murder, and not just murder by default. Long-term repression relies on ladders of escalation and de-escalation, and a Torpedo Sphere fleet would fit this niche perfectly. Very few planets could stand up to five of these fleets, but most would only need one especially when all the other imperial forces are already floating about. And we're going to buy 10 of these fleets. These 10 fleets will each be composed of 4 torpedo spheres, 6 interdictors, 40 raiders, 6 carriers, 12 frigates, 24 strike cruisers, 4 star destroyers, 36 light cruisers, several hundred fighters, 1 occupation force of 1 million soldiers. The total cost for each of these is is 400 billion adjusted credits for 1, or 4 trillion adjusted credits for all 10. We're all in at 42.5 trillion adjusted credits, 425 billion in traditional credits. The remaining 7.5 trillion is going on in imperial infrastructure projects, intelligence services, and military aid to local partners that will carry out our repression for us. It's also a comfy enough buffer to remove economies of scale, friction, and training or lead time calculations out of the discussion. After all, we have 57.5 trillion credits left over to solve those issues, before we even get to Death Star prices. We have created a force of 40,000 ships, likely expanding the existing Imperial fleet by at least 25%. There are enough stormtroopers, ties, materiel, and soldiers to conquer 50 worlds and a varied force that can take on any foe on its best day, and hold the line on its worst. It's been very interesting and quite fun to look at the technical details of these ships, and the politics, economics and geography of the Star Wars galaxy. And It's even more enjoyable to do it in a semi-serious method that accepts a lot of context is missing and the rule of cool has to prevail. What we built was a force that has the capacity to hold the line in 15,000 systems, and to overwhelm 2 to 5 of the most tier 1 worlds in the galaxy. If we talk bell curve, it's likely that this fleet will be able to base delta 0 10 systems at a time, and to squeeze insurgent fleets out of about 5,000 systems at any one time. The Empire's obsession with control would make this a no brainer especially because it would create a much larger pool of loyalist officers who have clear routes to build their fiefdoms. It's not one to three Death Stars without a clear ladder, it's a general officer path that's expanded. The great thing about the Empire is that it's not a junta of Prussian-style military men that happen to be fascist bootlickers, it's a junta of bootlickers that happen to have some military background. Visionaries like Thrawn were recognised but were sidelined after a certain point and the old influence systems of the Republic grew even more destructive and pervasive. It's not to mention the fact that cooperation was actively discouraged, and the dark side seeped in everywhere. The Sith ego is a huge factor in every strategic mistake the Empire made, and it's likely that all the dark side juju infected the brains of everyone above a certain level of power. Decapitation seems to be the strategy of the Sith, likely because that's how they live their lives and how they are defeated. They obviously didn't read Space Sun Tzu in the galaxy far, far away, instead of opting for Shiv Palpatine's big book of war. This ended up costing them greatly, when in reality, they should have been able to easily crush the entire rebellion, space wizards or no. That's the end of this week's topic. We'd love to hear from you about anything Empire or Hobby related. You can reach us on Twitter at the underscore GDBS. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to rate the podcast and share among your friends. And remember to keep your hobbies fun and keep them stupid, because that's what they're there for.